0: Indeed, Lord, that's our prayer this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O oh, Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> This morning we're looking at this very fascinating Old Testament story of Jonah. And as we look at this story this morning, let me just ask you two questions. These are for you to ponder as we go, so please don't raise your hands. First of all, have you received what you deserved this week? Have you received what you deserved this week? And second of all, is that a good thing or a bad thing? just think about that and keep those in mind as we go this morning i mentioned last week that i'm a fan of charles schultz's peanuts cartoons in one of his cartoons charlie brown violet and snoopy are walking along and and violet is saying to charlie brown sooner or later charlie brown there's one thing that you're going to have to learn you reap what you sow you get out of life exactly what you put into it no more and no less And as Violet and Charlie Brown continue walking, Snoopy stops and sits down to ponder this statement. And the final frame shows Snoopy heading back in the direction that they had come from, thinking to himself, I'd kind of like to see a little more margin for error. There's something about Violet's way of thinking that's sort of attractive. You reap what you sow. It's fair, right? It's all up to you. You deserve what you get and you get what you deserve. I mean, who can really complain if we're actually all getting exactly what we deserve? As good as it may sound, though, most of us don't really believe that or behave like that, at least not fully. It would be more accurate and honest to say that most of us believe that other people should get exactly what they deserve. Someone once said, We judge others by their actions. And we judge ourselves by our motives. For others, you reap exactly what you sow. You get exactly what you deserve. No more and no less. For ourselves, well, we'd kind of like to see a little more margin for error. Which is why we're so very thankful for, for the grace, mercy, and forgiveness of God in our own lives. But so often... We are so quick to judge others and assign them a place outside of God's favor. We see their sinful actions and behaviors, and we know that they're sinners. We see our own actions too. But we know we didn't really mean it, or that it was all a misunderstanding, or that, that we just couldn't help it because of the extenuating circumstances. So we judge others by their actions and ourselves, by our intentions and motives. This seems to have been the case with the prophet Jonah, at least to some extent. Jonah believed, like, like we so often do, that others, the wicked people of Nineveh in this case, should get exactly what they deserved, while he and his people enjoyed the benefits of God's grace. Jonah, like most Israelites of his day, had some very strong and clear convictions One of them was that the world was divided between the righteous and the unrighteous. His people, Israel, were righteous because they lived according to God's holy law. Their enemies were unrighteous and would be judged by God. You know Jonah's story. As a prophet of God, Jonah's business was to deliver God's word wherever it may be needed. But when God told him to go to Nineveh and preach... Jonah essentially said, Nineveh? Are you kidding? No way. Nineveh was was located near where Mosul, Iraq is today. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and they more or less ruled the area in Jonah's day, and they were not very nice people. They were ruthless in battle and vicious in conquest. They weren't satisfied just to defeat their enemies. They seemed to take pleasure in... In, in torturing them and humiliating them. History reports that when their armies marched into cities and villages, their soldiers would take their swords and tear open the bodies of pregnant women. That kind of vicious and ruthless and cruel. Jews hated Assyrians, and not without at least some reason. So when God called Jonah to Nineveh, he immediately set sail in the opposite direction. He chose to go to Tarshish at the far end of the ancient world, as far away from Nineveh as possible. Jonah 1.3 tells us exactly why he was making the trip. He was fleeing from the Lord. But why flee to Tarshish? In a sense, you would think that Jonah would jump on this opportunity to, to preach God's judgment and wrath against Nineveh. After all, God's instructions to Jonah right off the bat there in 1-1 were to go to Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness had come up before him. So why run? It's because Jonah knew the character of God. Jonah believed that God was just, and his fervent hope and prayer was that the people of Nineveh would eventually get what they deserved. But he also knew very good and well that God isn't obligated to give everyone exactly what they deserve. God, doesn't, uh, God isn't bound by the principle of you reap what you sow. If Jonah would have thought that God's intention was to give the people of Nineveh what was coming to them and that he would have a front row seat to the show, Jonah would have been on the first train to Nineveh. If he had thought that his preaching was, was for the purpose of striking fear into the hearts of the, Nineveh, uh, the people of Nineveh, just before God obliterated them, he would have forgotten about Tarshish and gone straight to Nineveh in a heartbeat. He would have liked nothing better than to see Nineveh wiped off the face of the earth. But Jonah knew the character of God he knew that, that God allows a little more margin for error, as Snoopy might say. He knew all too well that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. He didn't want to see Nineveh spared, so he tried to sail to Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. A fierce storm arose while they were at sea, and the sailors were doing everything they could to save the ship. But Jonah was oblivious to it all. He had gone below deck to sleep. The captain of the ship came and woke him up. They were about to be wiped out in this storm, and the sailors were suspicious of this man who could sleep through a storm of such intensity. Well, Jonah confessed that he was no doubt the cause of... of, uh, all of their trouble, and and he urged them to throw him overboard so that the ship might be saved. This is a bit of an aside, but I don't know if you've seen the, the Veggie Tales Jonah movie or not, but this section always makes me laugh. Jonah's played by the asparagus, who's always a bit melodramatic. He tells them this story and then says, I'm afraid the only thing left is to be thrown into the sea. To which Larry, the Ever cheerful sailor says, Oh, you don't have to do that. We've got a plank. You can just walk off. <laughs> yes, thank you, I think is how Jonah responds. Anyway, I'm seeing a lot of veggie tales. you know, two-year-old, all that, so anyway. <clears throat> well, the sailors were reluctant to throw Jonah overboard. They actually tried to row back to land first. When nothing else worked, they finally threw him into the sea. They, they operated on that ancient principle, better you than me, kind of a thing. Well, Jonah was immediately swallowed by a great fish. And inside the fish, he began to pray, begging God to hear him and save him. At God's command, the fish spit Jonah out onto dry land, and, and there the Lord called him a second time to go to Nineveh. Now, Jonah was reluctant, but he wasn't slow. This time he went, and he preached the message God gave him to preach. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. Then, eager to see God's judgment on this notoriously wicked place, he went out of the city to wait for the fireworks to start. And much to his chagrin, however, his efforts at Preaching were effective. So effective, in fact, that the whole city repented and turned from their sin. The whole city, everyone in Nineveh, from top to bottom, from oldest to youngest, from, from greatest to least, repented. Even the king put on sackcloth and ashes in an act of public repentance and submission. And as a result, God relented. And Nineveh was spared the judgment which Jonah had prophesied. Now, that should have made Jonah happy. I mean, really, how could any preacher ask for greater success than that? You preach a a sermon, and the entire city repents? That's incredible success. But Jonah got angry instead. So angry, in fact, that he prayed he might die. In essence, he said, I told you so. I knew you wouldn't go through with it, God. I knew you're the kind of God who is merciful and compassionate. And the whole reason I ran away to Tarshish in the first place is because I was afraid of this very thing, that you would spare this town. God was concerned for Jonah and provided a vine for him to give him shade from the hot sun. And Jonah was happy about the vine. But God also used the vine as an object lesson for Jonah when the next day he allowed a worm to chew on the vine and it withered. The withered vine, the scorching east wind, and the heat of the sun caused Jonah to get angry all over again, and he, and he prayed that he might die again. God asked, do you have a right to be this angry? And Jonah said, absolutely, I certainly do. I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. But Nineveh has more than a 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? And with that question and no answer from Jonah, The book ends. This story is probably the the strongest statement anywhere in the Hebrew Scriptures that God loves everyone, that he doesn't want anyone to perish. The New Testament sums it up in one verse, the verse we read from John earlier this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. The story, uh, this story in the book of Jonah gets at the same idea by identifying the people group that was uh, most difficult to love and, and saying, in effect, God so loved Nineveh that he sent Jonah to preach to them. But Jonah knew that God would have mercy on his enemies, and he was not happy about it. He didn't share God's compassion for Nineveh. He was not about to bless those who cursed him. He didn't want them to repent. He wanted them to suffer the way they had made others suffer. He was a hard liner, and God was too soft. Does that remind you of anybody in the New Testament? The New Testament, Jonah, is the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. And the lesson of that parable is much the same lesson as the book of Jonah. The younger brother squanders all of his inheritance from, the, from, from his father in immoral living and, and then heads for home. All the while, the older brother has been thinking of how superior he is to this black sheep of the family and how much he deserves from the father. But when this no-good brother comes home, what happens? The father puts a ring on his finger, a coat on his back, and he kills the best calf, For him. And he throws a party. Well, when the older brother hears about it, what does he do? He refuses to come in. He's angry that the father has shown mercy. Just like Jonah outside of Nineveh, the elder brother sulks outside the father's house. Ellsworth Collas, in his book, Old Testament Stories from the Backside, says that this story of Jonah is really a Christmas story. And Jonah is the original archetypal uh, Scrooge. Most of you know that story. Some of you can probably even quote Dickens' description of Scrooge. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, was Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping clutching, covetous old sinner, Scrooge is the diametrical opposite of the Christmas spirit. It's a bit unusual to do this, but I want to read you a couple of paragraphs directly from this fine sermon by Ellsworth Collis titled, Jonah's Christmas Story, because he addresses the point so clearly, much better than I'm able to do. So sit back and listen for a moment while we have Christmas in July. He says Jonah was a Scrooge. He didn't want to see the people of Nineveh saved. God wanted to celebrate Christmas in Nineveh, so to speak, to tell that wicked, brutal city that he loved them. But Jonah didn't have the Christmas spirit. God said, isn't it wonderful that the people of Nineveh want to be saved? And Jonah answered, bah, humbug. He feared that if he preached to them, his preaching would succeed, and they would change their ways. In which event, God, uh, in which event, God might withhold the judgment they had coming to them. And as it worked out, his worst fears about the goodness of God proved true. So Jonah couldn't sing joy to the world; the Lord has come. He was willing to sing joy to my people. He might even have gone so far as to sing joy to everyone but the Ninevites. But he couldn't possibly sing joy to the world because he didn't want the whole world to find joy. He hoped that God's joy would be selective, coming only to those persons who appealed to God and, yes, to those who, by his judgment, deserved joy. And here, dear friends, is the quality of Christmas. It has been given to us not because we deserve it, but because we need it. God gave us Christmas not on the basis of our merits, but on account of God's own love. Grace, we call it, and Christmas is the very essence of grace. So the story of Jonah tells us, hundreds of years before the first Christmas, that Christmas was on the way. Jonah learned that God cares not only for the attractive people, the chosen people, and the deserving people, but also for the people who, by all logic, deserve to be despised. As you read Jonah's story, you sense that there is a loving rumbling going on in heaven, and you know that someday something wonderful is going to happen, just as it did a few centuries later in Bethlehem. But see the proportions of the Christmas story. Jonah was called to preach to his enemies. Jesus was asked to die for them. Jonah was unwilling to go until he was forced to do so. Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jonah spent three days in the belly of a great fish because he was running from God. Jesus spent three days in the belly of the earth because he was running for God. Jonah went into the prison of a fish because he was disobedient. Jesus went into the prison of earth and death as an act of obedient love. Jonah's Christmas story is a lovely foreshadowing of what was to come. It shows us what God had in mind. It also shows us how difficult it may be for some of us humans to catch God's Christmas spirit. What God has in mind is love for the whole human race, and through that love, salvation. You know why I'm so glad that God loved the people of Nineveh so much? You know why this is such good news at Christmas time or in the middle of July or any time for that matter? I'm so glad that God loved the people of Nineveh so much because it gives me great hope for our cities today. If God loved Nineveh, then God loves Buffalo. If God loved Nineveh, then God loves Rochester. If God loved Nineveh, then God loves New York and Chicago and Los Angeles. He loves London and Tokyo and Seoul and Baghdad and Tehran and Beijing. Yes, God loves even Nineveh. That's very good news because what that means is that God loves the likes of you and me. On the surface, you and I are not as bad as the people of ancient Nineveh. We would probably have a hard time even imagining ourselves uh, doing some of the things that they were involved in. But we're infected with the same basic disease of sin. And while we may be a little more civilized, we're still at times pretty unlovable ourselves. We need a Savior. Jonah's core conviction had just been destroyed. He was certain That the world was divided between holy and profane places, and that the profane places would be judged. Staying holy was a lot of hard work, but at least you were supposed to watch God clobber the sinners, right? That's why Jonah didn't want to see Nineveh repent. But you know, God has his own core convictions, and among them is an eagerness to forgive. For Christians, there can be no us and them, because except by God's grace, we are all children of Nineveh. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. The cartoon character, Dennis the Menace, so named because he was always getting into trouble of some sort or the other. Was talking to his friend Joey one day as they walked away from Mrs. Wilson's house. Mrs. Wilson was a kind neighbor lady who took a special interest in Dennis. As Mrs. Wilson watched them walk away, both boys were munching on cookies. And Dennis turned to his friend Joey and said, Mrs. Wilson gives you a cookie not because you're good, but because she's good. You know, those words of Dennis make for some pretty good theology. Little Dennis's evaluation of Mrs. Wilson illustrates how God deals with us. God doesn't bless us because we're good. He does so because he's good. That's a lesson for us from the book of Jonah. Well, the story of Jonah ends with a question mark. Jonah is angry and God is reasoning with him, trying to persuade him to have a little compassion for the people of Nineveh. But we're never told the outcome of this interchange. We don't know how Jonah ultimately responded to God's question, shouldn't I be concerned about that great city? But you know, I think that's part of the point. The Hebrews of that time were supposed to answer that question for themselves. And we today are called to do the same. So here's the question for you and me this morning. If God so loved the world that he would send his son to save the people of Nineveh and Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and Las Vegas and Moscow and Toronto and Mexico City and all points, north, south, east, and west, what kind of love ought we then to show if we claim to have experienced God's love? If God asked us to pray for the Ninevites in our own lives, those persons who have hurt us, lied about us, and made us miserable, or the groups of people we find it hard to look upon kindly, if God would ask us to pray for them, give to their needs, or extend an arm of mercy and, and embrace to them, how would we respond? Would we, like Jonah, run for Tarshish? Or would we be merciful because our Father in heaven is merciful? Would we echo Violet's statement that you reap what you sow, no more, no less? Or would we follow Snoopy's lead and live out mercy and grace, allowing a little more margin for error? The hymn, There's a Wideness in God's Mercy, speaks to this, I especially like verses 2 and 3. There's a welcome for the sinner and more graces for the good. There is mercy with the Savior. There is healing in his blood. For the love of God is broader than the measures of man's mind. And the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. Since we have received the grace of God so richly, so freely... I hope that we will be ready to share it. As Ellsworth Collis says, maybe we can learn from Jonah and his later descendant Scrooge and live in the spirit of the one who gave us Christmas. Let's pray. Father, you have been so kind and merciful and gracious to each one of us. Enable us through the power of your spirit and your life within us, to also be merciful and kind and gracious because we have experienced that from you. And we'll give you all the thanks and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.